at every single investor meeting, at literally every single LP meeting, I got the same question. What does the exit landscape look like in Southeast Asia? The issue was that most exits were relatively small to other markets. The largest exits were like around $200 million. So if you compare that to India or China, that's just a very small number. Every single LP was concerned that it's an emerging market. There's lots of happening on the early stage, but at some point we need liquidity as LPs. And then where would it come from? Run it. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. Today, I have a very interesting guest, and his name is Michael Linz, partner of Golden Gate Ventures. I have previously interviewed Vinny Laurier, Jeffrey Payne, and Justin Hall. So I'm basically collecting my final set of all the four partners from Golden Gate. I'm sure that your team has expanded so much, and I really want to have this conversation with Michael today. Michael, welcome on the show. Thanks, you, Bernard, and thanks for having me. Yes, I want to start off by getting to know Michael. How did you start your career? As a start, I've always been in technology, at least as long as I can remember. Went to university, studied computer science and business administration. Also very typical after university, got my first job at a large corporate, ING, back in the Netherlands. So I worked in their insurance department and... This was my first foray into e-commerce because as a developer, I was working on the mainframes for the younger listeners. Those are very big computers. They asked me to help set up their first e-commerce partnership. Unfortunately, not made for corporate life. So I decided to leave my job after four years and build my own company with two friends that I knew for a very long time. That company evolved into becoming a data center. So we literally helped small and medium businesses outsource their IT infrastructure to our data center. This was way before AWS, Google Cloud, Azure, at least for us, the start of this cloud computing. We were very fortunate that company got acquired by a larger data center. As a founder, I was looking for what am I going to do next? I always wanted to give back to the community in some shape or form. Because we exited the company, I had some time on my hands. So I ended up working for the Dutch Economic Development Board. I was a vice chairman for four years. An amazing learning journey journey for me. It's, it's really good to see the, the politics behind the screens. After two terms, I noticed that I wanted to move ahead of my career. Went back to investing. Funny enough, I decided to do a, a venture capital and private equity course at Harvard in, in Boston. One of my classmates moved to Singapore and had met Vinny and Jeff of Golden Gate Ventures in the early days. This was the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. So he made the introduction. I met Vinny and Jeff over dinner. We had an amazing conversation and I would almost say the rest is history because I've been in Singapore ever since. So that is how you came to Southeast Asia. Since you have been an entrepreneur now, you have gone to the other side where you are now looking at startups. What are the key lessons you can share with my audience about your career journey? My biggest one, specifically the first time you build a company and build a business, I realized that... I lack mentorship. I would have loved to have a mentor in that time. For anyone that is building a company, even if you're an experienced entrepreneur, I think having a mentor is is extremely helpful. And then so, find someone who's very critical of you, also encourages you. So I think that's one big lesson. I'd almost say that the second one for me was like really think long-term. In our nature, we think of, I want short-term, quick results. It gives you a boost of energy. It keeps you motivated. But really building something for the long term is so incredibly valuable. At a young age, I just didn't have that experience. Later in life, luckily I did, but yeah, building something for the longer term is extremely important. So don't get too greedy too fast. So just take your time, trust the process, I would always say. We overestimate what we could build one year, but underestimate what we can build in a decade. As a partner from Golden Gate Ventures, 
What's your current role and coverage? As a partner in Golden Gate Ventures, I tend to focus on what I would call the latest stage of our portfolio. You know that our funds typically invest at the early stage as our companies are graduating through their Series B and Series C. The types of investors change. They become more institutional. They could be foreign investors looking at the region. And that's where I get involved and help make those connections. I sit in on due diligence calls when those investors are looking at our portfolio companies. I help organize and orchestrate co-investments. So I tend to sit on the, the latest stage out of the portfolio. That's one part. The second part is fundraising on a fund and firm level. The moment we go out to market for a new fund, I'm deeply involved in the preparation and then eventually the roadshows and, uh, and talking to investors. I think there's also an evolution of the venture capital firm. A lot of people just think about, oh, uh, the VCs just do investments and that's it. No, that's also things like uh, raising money from the LPs, doing due diligence, or maybe even setting up a growth fund. I wanted to get an understanding since I last spoke to Justin in early 2019, how has the firm grown? You all raised the third fund, I think in VC land, typically if you reach the third fund, it's probably you're already in business. As a team and as partners, we've always seen Golden Gate Ventures almost as our own startup because we've been there since the early days. You see the company grow. You think about, you know, how do we innovate our business? How do I scale? You're right. See, you can say that fund two is typically the death valley. If you can get it right, it's difficult to raise your third fund. Once you're at fund three, it doesn't get easier, but it becomes a process. And when it becomes a process, at least it becomes a bit more predictable. The biggest evolution we've seen as a firm is looking for ways to continuously innovate. And whether it's doing something on the crypto side or looking at different ways to do fundraising, whether it's different ways to look at to manage your portfolio, I think that's it's one evolution I've seen up, up close and personal. I say this, the second thing, how do you grow in an emerging ecosystem? Because you're very dependent on what the ecosystem gives you. The ecosystem is very dependent on what you give it as well. So navigating that is, has been, I guess, the biggest growth in our firm. You can see that within our team. So as an example, we've built out what we call a portfolio growth team, which does full-time services for portfolio companies, whether it's, you know, talent acquisition or fundraising or business development. That was a, a big shift in our firm and in our structure and how we work. And that's been fundamental in, in how we operate. Is the firm now going into things like executives in residence or even entrepreneurs in residence, similar to the US VC firms? We've thought about it a number of times. We don't have an official program. I would say as ecosystem players, we have our ears and eyes close to the ground. We tend to like to hear when, for instance, people are decided to leave the firm they're working for and want to build something on their own. We don't do it through an official EIR program, but we have helped entrepreneurs in the very early days in setting up their business, thinking through the idea stage, even helping collect some angel investments and then we track them very closely. And once they get to a stage where they're slightly larger, we can look at those companies from a fund. I've always looked at EIR programs as, as highly valuable. So we might still consider it for the future. I think it's really good having that experience in your team, being very close to the latest developments, what are these entrepreneurs working on? And I think also these entrepreneurs can give back to the funds by sharing their experience um, within the portfolio. We'll definitely consider something like this down the road, but we don't have it officially at this moment. As a venture capitalist, do you have a investment thesis when you think about the space? I know investment thesis can evolve and we can have strong opinions, but loosely held. So do you have one? Yeah, it's a very good question because specifically when you're fundraising for the firm, it's of course the one question you always get. And the question is always about differentiation. How is your thesis different than the other funds? I would say for us, the, the first thing that we tend to focus on is 
the companies that we want to invest in and the founders we want to back need to build something that is of value for a local or a regional ecosystem. We tend to shy away from companies that have to compete on a global scale. So our thesis is we want to back and find companies that compete on a local or regional scale. So they have this competitive advantage because of the fact that they're local. So that's one important element. I think the second important element is when the fund started, the narrative was we believe in this ecosystem because there is a rising consumer class that is going to be more sophisticated when it comes to using technology. We want to grasp this specific consumer class with all the services that they need, whether it's financing, education, healthcare, transport, you know, mobility, consuming content. We tend to look within, within that space and you'll see that a lot of our portfolio companies, they tend to sit within those sectors. How do you decide? If you want to invest in a team with a product. Yeah, I'd say the first check is still the founder and the founding team. It's very hard at an early stage to ignore that part. And I'd say it's more than 50% of the evaluation is how does the founder or the founding team operate? The second thing that we look at once the founder check passes, um, does this business model actually get to scale? That's where we put in a bit of work and it's, it's something that Jeffrey loves to do in model out. How big can this business model become or how big can this product become within the confines of this region? What does things like expansion look like? And that's, that's a longer check that we do. Fortunately enough, we've been investing in the region for the past 10 years. So we have like a lot of internal data that we can leverage. Uh, we have experience that we can leverage. We have networks that we can leverage. The moment we have an understanding of, okay, this is actually a scalable business. Then we look at all the other factors as in competition, the funding it would need to get to a certain scale. How competitive is the space? Is it a space literally increasing in size and there's restrictions when it comes to regulations or cross-border opportunities? So we'll get more into the nitty gritty, but for us, I would say founder and then second business model and scalability are the first two checks that we tend to do. So what are the red flags then? The red flag for me typically is when founders start over-promising because we prefer to work with founders that have a very good sense of the industry that they're in and they're able to manage those expectations. And when everything blue skies and, and fairy tales, it just gets very difficult for us to get past. That's typically a red flag. So when we ask critical questions about you know, whether the model, the product, how the product develops, how they execute, how they look at growth. We want them to have a very sensible view of their own sector and, and how that evolves. So I think that's the red flag is if they don't really explain it properly, we tend to put a red check mark be beside that. The other one would be around their assumptions on exits. This is my personal opinion. I honestly don't believe that you can predict your exit if you're just starting a business. The way the world moves, the pace it moves at. You cannot tell me at, you know, seed or series eight, if you're going to have an IPO, a trade sale, whether it's going to be a JV or a merger, it's very difficult to predict. Sometimes when I see there is too much of a focus on, we're going to exit at this multiple to these players. For me, that's always a red flag because my question is, how are you able to predict this? So that's another one. But the third one is leadership. Does the founders or the founding team really understand that once this company scales, they're going to lead a larger company and that brings a different skill set. Do they understand what is needed to run a company at scale? Anything from hiring, strategy, working with investors, having a strong board, understanding your industry, fighting off competition. Once you're in that leadership position, your entire life changes. Founders to understand and explain to us how they view themselves when they are at that point in, in life. Before we get into the main topic. What are the most notable investments and exits that you have done in your years as a partner with Golden Gate? I'll talk about one of the most notable 
exits. It was a private sale. The acquirer have only remained quiet and, and sort of not, not in the public. It was an interesting one because the company itself was in the, in the, the app development space. A uh, very strong team. It's just that the sector that they chose was almost make off the shelf apps, uh, mobile apps. It just didn't take off. And I think that the timing was just a little bit off, but because it was a very strong team, we wanted to give them a good home. We've been investing with them for a few years. So we went back to the drawing board and said, what are the options? Funny enough, the, the company didn't only have a good team. They also had a very decent product. So we said. Can we get this company sold, almost sold twice, where the team gets acquired by a firm and someone else buys the IP and the product? So we went on strategizing. We eventually found two companies that said, one company said, we're interested in the IP. We don't want the team. The other company said, we, we want the team, don't want the IP. So almost like a perfect storm. So we ended up giving the team a home, getting the IP done and even make a decent return on the investment. I was very closely tied to that. I think that was one of the most interesting ones. That's a very interesting story because that really dovetails into the main subject of the day is relating to Southeast Asia exit landscape. I think when I first started off as an ex-startup founder many years back, the word exit is probably something that not many people would think about. I think the ecosystem have evolved over the last 10 years. It's actually a very good testament to the team from Golden Gate Ventures to take a lens and see how the exit landscape looked like. I think this report was done between Golden Gate Ventures and INSEAD as well. To start off, what is the motivation behind the report and the intended audience for you? Yeah, it's a good question. It's actually quite funny because I don't think many people know the story behind it. My initial motivation when we did the first report with INSEAD, I was on a roadshow and this was in Japan and Korea. So we were actually raising a uh, raising for fund number three. At every single investor meeting, at literally every single LP meeting, I got the same question. What does the exit landscape look like in Southeast Asia? The issue was that most exits were relatively small to other markets. The largest exits were like around $200 million. So if you compare that to India or China, that's just a very small number. Every single LP was concerned that it's a emerging market. There's lots of happening on the early stage, but at some point we, we need liquidity as LPs. And, and where would that come from? As I was answering these questions during this roadshow, I said to myself, well, we have so much data and not only us, all the other firms, all of our peers have so much data on where this ecosystem is going. So I told the team, it makes sense if we try to write a report around this. Initially, we can do it as an internal exercise, but I think what is more important is that we showcase to a foreign LPs, but even local LPs, what we forecast for. Uh, so the first thing we did was uh, we did a lot of work with INSEAD on a few other research projects. I asked Akali Seisberger and her team. Would you guys be interested in doing this alongside us? She took 15 seconds to say yes. This makes a lot of sense because she was literally having the same conversations with family offices and PE firms. So that's how the first report came together. So the current one in the 2021, that's the second report, right? Yeah, that's the second report. What are the methodologies used by the team to bring the report together? We've, we're doing a few things. I'll, I'll start with the easy part. So we just take a lot, a lot of public data. We use platforms like Crunchbase, the Tech in Asia, the E27. We just gather all the data into one pool. And we look historically what have been the previous exits. The biggest issue there is that none of these exits are public. <laughs> They're all private. We're fortunate to leverage a bit of data. It's a relatively small ecosystem. So we can ask our peers and our friends, hey, do you have a bandwidth of the, the size of this exit? In some cases, the number is public, but not too often. 
So public data is the first part. I would say in the entire scheme, it's relatively easy. The second part is that we do surveys, and this is where we collaborate closely with INSEAD. So INSEAD uses their network of VC managers, family offices, PE firms to, it's a 50 question survey where we ask them from their point of view and their expertise on Outlook. The reason why the survey is important is we wanted to layer the historical data, which is really just, just information from the industry and opinions from the industry. So we'll add the, the service as well. The third part is a little bit harder is where we try to forecast where we see exits going. So the methodology that we use is we've tracked almost every single funding round that happened in the past, I'd say six or seven years. Based on those funding rounds, we have an understanding how many companies would evolve from you know, C to Series A, Series A to Series B, and so forth. Because the subset of companies that are at the Series D, E, and you know, potentially the pre-IPO stage is very small, we have to do some assumptions there. But with those forecast assumptions, I'll give an example. If we have a thousand companies raising a Series A, we know that out of those thousand companies, around 600 companies will successfully raise a series B. Then we go down to when a company is at series D, we'll have a hundred companies left that will be at the series D stage. Of those companies, the likelihood of 15% getting acquired is pretty high. So we'll use this method of forecasting in terms of how many exits we will foresee. The funny part this year, and this is actually the moment we released the report this year, there were a number of exit announcements and, and listings happening. We had some of this insight, but we didn't have it fully. I think in this report, the last one, the thing we also included was the path to liquidity for like a listing has become easier. So naturally we'll see an increase of companies getting listed as well. And this was different than the previous report because we said we're going to see way less IPOs. We increased the numbers of, of IPOs you will see. Let me take a step back, maybe let's go back to the first report, which was in 2016, 2017 period. What are the key predictions in that earlier report and what has changed before we dive into the, the recent report then? Yeah, I would say the key predictions was that we had one assumption. The key assumption going into re the report was 90%, close to 90% of the exits are going to be trade sales. There's a small percentage that are going to be secondaries because it literally buys out the early investors then a smaller percentage will be IPOs. I think going into the report, our assumption was the acquirers are going to be the likes of the big tech firms coming from China, maybe a few from India and some US ones. The data showed that the biggest acquirers were actually local tech companies. It's literally tracks, Gojek and Grab, or now GoTo, that are the biggest acquirers. But what it also meant, and this was not a revelation, this was something that people needed to understand. The moment a unicorn acquires a tech company, that acquisition would never be in the billion dollar range. So that acquisition will always be around a hundred million, 200 million, or it could be like an aqua hire. For investors, those are not the most amazing exits in terms of returns. And so I think our biggest conclusion from the report was, yes, the number of exits will definitely increase. There's going to be more unicorns in the region. Those unicorns are going to be acquisitive. So they're going to acquire more companies, but those acquisitions will not be at maximum value for the investors. So that was, that was a big, a big outcome. The other outcome, which was, which ended up to being true is that we're going to see for the first time in the region and the fund life for the fund ones. So all the managers that had their fund one in 2010, between 2010 to 2012, they're going to get towards end of life 
pretty soon or are there already. So you're going to see either a large secondary transaction or you're going to see managers pushing a number of portfolio companies towards an exit. And that was, that was the other prediction. And we said that the likelihood of companies getting listed is only just going to be a handful. This was just the nature of the Singapore Stock Exchange was where the appetite for companies to go from Southeast Asia to list in the US. There was a lot of appetite, but it was a very small number of companies that were actually eligible uh, to get listed there. And also to be fair, at that point in time, there were no specs and there were no direct listings to, to add on to the complexity as well. Then coming to the 2021 report, to be fair to you, have compiled the report and of course all the announcements of the exit start popping up in 20, 2021. Of course, you'll probably revise it in the next one, two years or so. What are the key takeaways from the 2021 report then? We definitely spent quite a bit of time on SPACs in the report, but Funny enough, that wasn't the biggest takeaway. For me, the biggest takeaway was the data that we saw on the Series B to Series D rounds. I think for the first time in at least the history of this ecosystem, we saw a large influx of Series B and Series C rounds. So the number of companies that were able to raise a Series B in a relatively short time period, that was new. This was started by foreign investors taking a very different approach to this ecosystem. So those foreign investors were relatively fast. So it didn't take a year of due diligence to write a check. Some of them were really fast and <laughs> did it within a month's time. The fact that you have these top tier foreign investors look at this region, it attracts more institutional capital as well. The reason I'm saying this was important to me in the report was the moment you have a pipeline of well-capitalized Series B and C companies, you're going to foresee that the number of companies later stage growth equity, potentially pre-IPO, is going to get larger as well. In the previous report, of course, we made an assumption about the number of companies being able to raise later stage rounds. But in this report, it was so evident that this was going to happen at a faster pace that all of these companies that are raising more and larger, I would almost say kind of growth rounds, are going to be way more eligible for an exit. Even if it's an acquisition or even if, if it's a listing, companies at a larger scale that have proven the business model, that have the ability to look at profitability in three to four years, are going to be a way more interesting acquisition target than a company just coming out of the Series A, a bit struggling to get to the Series B, it's not fully fleshed out. It doesn't look like an interesting acquisition target. So having all of these growth rounds happening, it lights a fire of more acquisitions to be happening over the coming year. For those foreign players that come in, we are talking about the likes of say a Tiger Global or SoftBank, something of that scale where yes. they supercharge the ecosystem with a lot of money. And because mm -hmm. the funny thing is if you look at then potentially public listings, the moment you have these backgrounds behind you and you are able to get to the Series E stage and then at some point you get to pre-IPO, the likelihood of these investors backing you in all these rounds is pretty high if the business keeps on growing. Again, it also means that you are going to be way more eligible for a successful listing. Of course, you know, it's all dependent on the product and timing and market, but one component is also just having a very strong cap table that is able to help you throughout that pre-IPO round. That's going to happen more and more as these latest stage funds, the examples that you just are going to be more active in the region. Mm. You mentioned one of the key drivers, which is these foreign direct investment funds from the global companies. But are there any other key drivers for the exit landscape in Southeast Asia? Yeah. So the one thing is sophistication. The reason is 
the moment you have a, a very thriving, very energetic early stage venture and, and startup ecosystem that is good for founders, but it's actually not amazing for managers have to look at what does the next round look like and what does liquidity look like? So I think there is another thing that, that helped was the stock exchanges took a liking to what is happening in Southeast Asia. We've always had the difficulty that if I would travel to the U.S. and talk to institutional investors, you would talk about two companies, Grab and Go Jack. And you hardly would speak of any other companies, two, three companies. If I fly back now, I can easily mention 15 companies. And I think that is a big change as well. So the sophistication of the ecosystem is way more than it was a few years ago. That has been a very big change. In the last two for three months, we must have added four or five unicorns. So I think it helps with institutional investors looking at this ecosystem and announcing it's actually at a stage where I can point to companies that could potentially exit at a significant scale. Again, the moment you just have exits that are sub $500 million, that is not going to be a thriving or interesting ecosystem for late stage institutional investors. When you get exits that are at the, the one to $2 billion range, then you're going to see the first size of maturity. As more startups reach the unicorn stage, do they become acquirers? What is the calculus for them becoming potential exits for new startups? I think you alluded earlier to some of the startups being taken over by the unicorns in the earlier stage, like a Grab or Gojek. Would there reach a situation where, because to acquire startups for the talent, they might end up unintended consequences to actually eliminate too much competition in the market. The, the point I made earlier about these more late stage investors coming to the region, I know the local managers are also raising larger funds. The reason why this is extremely important is that it gives founders a choice. The moment you're a company at series B and you're doing fairly well, you're out in the market to raise your series C and there's not enough capital looking at series C in this specific region. That makes it very difficult to scale your business. So you have a few alternatives. One is you can get your company to break even and, and try to keep the company running at a clip where there's not massive growth because there's, there's an additional capital, but you, you can keep the company running. Or you decide to sell your company to one of the larger players because they can then bankroll you and help you expand. The fact now is that strong companies at Series B have a choice. They can say, you know what, I don't want to get acquired because I think we have so much more to build out and so much more growth in our company that I can literally raise a series C and scale my business. I think that is a big difference because instead of being a $300 million company, but because you get to that growth stage, you're going to be like a billion dollar company or a $2 billion company. Because founders now have choice, we'll see less elimination that we saw previously where these large companies are taking out the competition. So the only choice that the larger companies have is they're, they're either going to raise to do acquisitions. That's one thing that's going to happen more. And whether it's raising debt or whether it's raising equity, but we're going to see more of these larger companies that are specific going to fundraise to do a larger acquisition. And I think that's good for the ecosystem. Again, it takes us away from these sub $500 million acquisitions and you, you get to the larger number. So my guess is the current dynamic is extremely good for the ecosystem because you're going to get a large pipe of series B and C, C's companies. It's going to be in a very good position to raise either a large round or when they get acquired to do it at a premium, these large unicorns would need to raise capital to actually make this acquisition happen. How about the local and global corporate venture funds? I'll give an example. A local corporate venture fund would be something like the Singtel Innovate and a global one would be something like Intel Capital. Intel Capital was quite early in the region, funding some of the companies here as well. What are their objectives and how do they affect 
the exit market as well. To be honest, to my surprise, I would have imagined they would be more acquisitive than they have been. I think if you look at Singapore-based MNCs, large conglomerates in Thailand or Indonesia, my assumption was they would have done more acquisition to date, which hasn't been the case. And I'm unsure where that's going. They're going to be outpaced by the local tech unicorns that are just have a better grasp of the ecosystem, are able just to move faster. There's another one happening. The one thing that I didn't mention is the pace at which secondary buyers are now providing liquidity for early investors is growing at a very fast rate. So to me, I think the corporate CVCs still have some work to do to be more, not only acquisitive, but just be faster um, in the region when it comes to doing these larger rounds and potentially strategically looking at acquisitions. I think there, there's some firms in, in Korea and Japan that are doing it very well, but I'm surprised that sort of the big brand names here in Singapore haven't done it yet. I have a theory on this is relating to a lot of these local companies being listed in SGX and the local investors are very dividend centric. They are not the type of investors who would invest in growth. If you take, let's say, for example, the way how Jeff Bezos from Amazon manages their investors in the US with the same story, I don't think you can fly in a region, in a SGX uh, context as well, because all these dividends, the local companies actually do not have enough capital to actually make a big acquisition. They're always stuck in this, uh, what I call the vicious cycle of trying to balance between paying dividends and focus on growth, which you see a lot of the companies are having a lot of problems with their digital transformation as a result. Maybe that's the reason why you're not seeing that corporate venture funds from actually doing that well as compared to a, a more global one. Yeah, this is a very good point. Yeah, definitely agree. I want to dive a little bit deeper. Are we seeing a lot more later stage funds entering into Southeast Asia? Where would that be coming from? Yeah, I'm convinced we're going to see an increase of larger foreign funds coming to the region. You always need one or actually you, you need a few. And the moment that there is a larger funding round happening, other brands will start looking as well. The thing is the other brands were asking, what are they seeing that we're not seeing? So they're going to do research. They're going to talk to the early stage funds. They're going to talk to the founders and, and see what opportunities there are. I think a lot of the, the global names have now done their research and said, there's actually something here because you'll see more and more of these later stage funds working with early stage funds and writing checks. The issue has always been, at least from a funding standpoint, that there weren't enough company to write big enough checks in. In my previous conversations with later stage investors, they always said, we can't keep backing those same three or four companies. There needs to be a, a deeper ecosystem of companies that we can write at least 50 million into and not be a single investor in the entire round. So the round has to be a bigger as well. I think we're now at the stage where we are slowly seeing it happen. This is where it becomes more compelling because they can one, write a larger check because they sit on massive funds, but they also have then the means to continue to follow on in upcoming rounds. What we'll see is historically, a company would always raise a round of funding once a year or once in every 18 months. We're going to see more and more happen that a large round will happen Within six months, they'll raise another round. That could be specific to expanding to a new country. It could be specific to doing acquisition. Because there's more capital available, people are willing to just put money to work, even at a premium. We're going to see these rounds happen faster. How are the LPs looking at Southeast Asia? I'm very curious because do they see it as a common market, which is the way we sell it to them? 
Or do they really understand the nuances that actually there is Vietnam, there is Thailand, and there is Indonesia. They all speak different language. Singapore is more like a beach head with a small market plus maybe being the Delaware of Asia Pacific. Yeah, it's a very good question. And it's, it's very dependent on the sophistication of the LP. I, I would say that in current times, a lot of LPs have done their homework, but they're still trying to get a grasp of uh, how does this exactly work? There's always this very interesting conversation around if you back a company as a manager. So an LP asks, we, we put money into your funds and you go find those companies. And if you find this company, do you feel that the company needs to be a regional winner? Or do you feel that the, the number two or the number three in Vietnam within the sector can grow to a large size enough that it gets to a significant exit? I think LPs are still figuring out this question and trying to get an understanding. Their concern is that there are not going to be many regional behemoths that are large enough that they become the Amazon of this region or the Facebook of this region or whatever. They're trying to get an understanding of regional versus local. I think they're at a stage now that they are seeing that the local companies actually can get to a significant size and can get large enough to you know, become a potential candidate for listing or, or, or significant acquisition. There is still a question of how deep is this ecosystem and, and how many companies at the early stage will come to the fold and become growth companies as well. They're still figuring out how that works and they're still doing that research on that side. They do understand the complexity of Southeast Asia and that we call it ASEAN, but that there's still <laughs> many different countries, different regulations, there's different ways of doing business everywhere. So they, they do understand and they ask a lot of questions around this and how that exactly works. But there, there is a lot of LP confidence in Southeast Asia at this moment. So projecting three years from today, where do you see the exits will be coming from? For example, do you have some idea like maybe how many percent of this current breed of startups will go through either a mergers and acquisitions or M&A in short, or a public listing of specs? I'm fairly confident that we'll have still a majority going through M&A. So I'd say well over 60% will still go through M&A. What specs have done is it, it has put a light on the ecosystem, a positive light, and it's given a more flexible way to, for companies to list. But I'm also very convinced that we're not going to see a massive influx of listings. It's it, the process, you're still going to be a public company. So it, it means that there's going to be a big change in, in how the company is going to be run. I'm confident that we're going to see that percentage increase, but I don't see it being more than 10%, to be very honest. I think what's going to be a big driver for exits, besides the, the, the M&A and trade sales, is larger secondaries. I think the larger PE funds, the larger hedge funds having more and more interest in tech. Back in the days, when you talk to a hedge fund, they would say, what is your tech exposure? They would say, yeah, it's just below 5%. Increasing, it is now 10 to 20%. So I'm confident that as these hedge funds have large pools of dry powder, they're raising funds faster, they're going to deploy more into tech as well, and they're going to do more of these secondaries. So that's going to be a, a significant way of doing exits for, for early stage funds as well. But it's quite obvious, right? Because software is eating the world. The software is eating more and more into the world. The hedge funds exposures in tech will actually increase because it's actually percolating all the different verticals itself. One key observation that in a recent report from the Ken is that specs look like the main exit strategy for key companies. We talk about grabs, 40 billion spec. We have go to 
going through the same, which is a merger between Gojek and Tokopedia. What are your thoughts on SPAC as a exit strategy and what are the potential drawbacks to going through an exit in that way? So if you ask me personally, I think it's brilliant. I think if we didn't have the, the SPAC frenzy in 2020, beginning of 2021, we wouldn't be at the stage where we are right now. These companies might have had to consider either a direct listing or like a traditional IPO, which is not only more costly, the process is a bit more complex as well. But SPAC has given them an avenue to list quicker than I think initially planned. There is a big downside though. The downside is the, the sentiment around, around SPACs. The moment things goes up and everything is amazing. You're now seeing that there are like a large number of SPACs that, that are trading below the $10 threshold. There's been a number of litigations for SPAC sponsors where there has been like non-transparency about the target company. The despecting process hasn't been as fluid as it has to be. So hence the SEC is looking at more regulation on SPACs and SPAC sponsors. That to me is a risk because you can have an amazing company, but if the, the SPAC and the DSPAC process isn't successful, it taints that amazing company. They would then have to go back to market, go back fundraising and go through this process all over again. That is a very big risk that founders need to take into account that the market sentiment around SPACs, we've seen it happen over the past few months, can change really fast. It could literally hurt your, your path towards an exit or towards a listing. I'm very happy that we are going to see more direct listings. And I think that's going to be a very strong way and a good way to do, to do a, a listing as well. The announcement of Tomasek launching the growth funds to help companies create a path towards a potential listing here in Singapore is going to help. In the end, the business principle still counts. It needs to be a very good company. It needs to be very strong management. There needs to be growth. That doesn't change. SPACs have opened up a route for companies to get listed faster. It has opened up the eyes of institutional investors to put money behind the money behind these companies. I'm just very concerned on the sentiment at this moment that revolves around SPACs. Just as SPACs are very interesting, I think the crypto space is also very interesting too, because there are a lot of key crypto people living in Singapore, the crypto hedge funds, the developer of protocols, they're all living here. How do you think about investing in the crypto space? Because the valuations are very different from the way what the traditional companies are. I think that's the first thing. The mechanism of even getting financing is also extremely different through a token sale, could go through even now a traditional VC as well, as we have seen it in the US with interest in Horowitz crypto fund. Where do you see that space? I am very bullish on crypto. One of the things that we did as a firm yeah, our, our traditional VC funds have limitations in terms of putting LP monies into crypto. So as a flagship fund, we don't do this. Hence, we have created a fund in 2017 with one of our team members that focused solely on crypto. That fund is now under Play Ventures. But the reason why we did it back in 2017 was we saw the potential of what crypto could bring. We wanted to understand it as well at the same time. It's a market that moves uh, at lightning speed. <laughs> So we needed to understand the, the mechanics a little bit more. For, for me, it, it's an open door, but for me, crypto is definitely here to stay. The influence is going to get bigger. It's going to get more institutionalized. I think it's an amazing means to democratize finance and make it more access. So if you talk about embedded finance, I think crypto is going to play uh, a big part in it. Definitely bullish. I'll, I'll definitely follow it closely. I think we're going to see more in Singapore. It's global as well. You don't even need to be anywhere, right? The, the beauty of it is that you can be global from anywhere. Can people are, the crypto teams are actually working remotely and cloud first. So they're extremely low cost in terms of the way how you manage deals, uh, DAOs and et cetera. But I, I know this will be another conversation that we're yes. going to have. 
my final question to you, what is the future for startups and the VC funds for this decade? The future is we're going to solve more complex problems within the communities. So I'm very positive on founders and VC funds more and more taking a deeper look at how can we leverage technology to solve actual world problems and, and, and solve them for a bigger group in this demographic. That is my hope. We're moving in that direction. The second thing is more VC funds and founders giving back to other founders. We've created it so far, but it's going to be deeper. An ecosystem where founders support founders, VC managers are going to be more supportive of founders, helping them through the cycles. Like if we were like 10 years out, I'm fairly confident that We'll, we'll have companies that play a global role coming from Singapore. We're going to see more companies that are going to be impactful on, on healthcare and agriculture and safety and, and security. So I'm, I'm very bullish that what founders are building and we're going to be in a different space in, in, in the next 10 years. Mm. Many thanks for coming on the show, Michael. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get you back on sometime in the future. So in closing, my first question, can you recommend any that have inspired you recently? The, the, the friends that know me, because I talk about it all the time, is I'm a big fan of Reboot, Jerry Colonna. I read the book and in all honesty, for me, it was like, especially going through COVID, dealing with all the, the mental health issues that a lot of our friends are dealing with that have been through a darker period myself as well. Reboot has been an amazing book and it's been such a reflection that I would say most inspiring book at this moment. Thank you for the recommendation. I'm going to take a look at the book too. Last question, where can my audience find you? I do have to add on one recommendation. I do enjoy reading your blog. So you have to tell my audience where to find it. Thank you so much. So yeah, I write a blog on Medium. It's called Adversus. So pretty easy to find, or you just look up my name on Medium and you'll find my articles. I'm a very social person. So you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Yeah. You know, if anyone has questions, if I don't want to talk, please feel free to it. You can definitely Google us. Analyze Asia. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and every other podcast platform out there. Of course, tweet to us. Our Twitter handle is at, at Analyze Asia, A N A L Y S E, Asia, A S I A, and also our LinkedIn page. Oh, Michael, many thanks for coming on the show. I look forward to better times where we can have another conversation again. Thank you, Smart Brother.